going hot. Oh, we're live now. <laughs> All right, welcome everybody. We're gonna we have uh, a lot of panelists who know a lot of stuff with a lot of things to say, so we're gonna get started reasonably on time. I'm Jim Henson. I direct the Texas Politics Project at UT and work in the uh, one of the technology and instructional development groups in the College of Liberal Arts here uh, on behalf of the Texas Tribune. And though it's not in the script, since I work here on behalf of UT Austin, I want to welcome you to the fourth annual Texas Tribune Festival. Into the panel, why early college or why why early college high school works. We're joined by a distinguished and knowledgeable set of panelists that stretch across the breadth of the subject. Um, and so, I want to get started. I'm going to introduce them very briefly, their bios in your in your guide. But again, with so many folks here, I'm going to say very little about them and uh, let their experience kind of speak for itself while during the course of the panel. Um, so immediately to my right, Shirley Reed is the founding president of South Texas College in McAllen, which was established in 1994. Uh, next down is David Watts, has served as, who has served as the fifth president of the University of Texas at the Permian Basin since 2001. And I have to add, again, holds a bachelor's degree in sociology and English from this university. William, uh, yeah, I'm a real, like, I'm like an organization guy, it was you know. before the Civil War. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, William Serrata, next to him, has been the president of the El Paso County Community College District since August of uh, 2012, and in the great circle of things and panels, was vice president for student affairs and enrollment management at South Texas College. Uh, Wynn Rosser. You're not going to mention my degrees? Uh, should I? There, there are two of them from College Station. Uh, well, I forgot about that, yeah. I think, I think in the editing, it kind of like, it just didn't quite make the cut, you know, very little time. Uh, Wynn Rosser is the executive director of the Greater Texas Foundation, which supports initiatives that increase uh, rates of post-secondary enrollment and completion for all Texas students. Uh, next to him, Daniel King uh, has served as the superintendent uh, of the far San, uh, San Juan Alamo uh, Independent School District. And next to him, my colleague Victor Sines uh, is an associate professor in the Department of Educational Administration in the College of Education here at UT Austin. So we're going to chat for about 60 minutes. We'll chat. We have 60 minutes. We'll chat probably for 45 or so, I think. And we'll include uh, some time for Q&A at the end, if at all possible. There are microphones in the audience. Please, if you haven't done so already, please uh, silence your cell phones. Uh, for those of you that are tweeting, the hashtag is TribuneFest. There's also a track-specific hashtag that is hashtag TTF public ed, no spaces. Um, I think you can probably follow Morgan Smith if we manage to get her to tweet for us. Are you on tweet alert or are you live blogging? All right, multitasker. <laughs> a youngin. All right. Um, so, you know, we were talking before, and what we thought we'd do is, given his extensive experience in this space, that we would ask Daniel King to sort of set the stage for the early college high school programs and how they've, how they've developed. So take it away, please. Surely. The early college high school concept has been around for, you know, a good number of years, uh, and uh, its predecessor or what it's based on really is dual enrollment, and you can look at it as a more focused uh, dual enrollment program with the purpose of young people uh, earning their associate degree or approximately two years of college while they're in high school. And like I said, it's been around for a while. It's tended to, uh, for many years, 
It was done uh, just you know, in a few places and kind of a boutique model. Um, in the uh, early part of this, um, of, of, of this century, the, the, the Gates Foundation and others uh, put significant uh, backing behind it uh, to, to spread it here in Texas. Um, Educate Texas, at that time known as the Texas High School Project, was formed to, to help, um, to help m move this forward um, throughout Texas. And uh, in the years here in Texas especially is where the early college uh, high school model has really uh, proliferated rapidly and also uh, changed quite a bit. And so the early college high school, the idea uh, you know, here in Texas was to go to um, communities where there were, uh, where, where there were a lot of first-generation students, students who would be the first in their family to, to go to college who did not have the, you know, the family uh, experience with that, uh, communities with economically disadvantaged students, uh, a lot of minority students, and uh, start developing the college culture in high school, not by talking about college or not by getting students ready for college, but actually having them uh, start college. And the, the changes as it's gone on here in Texas, uh, the, the typical model that had been done in other states, North Carolina being a, a leader in that area, is a, a separate campus typically housed on the college campus. Students apply, they're selected by lottery. And, and that had been the, uh, and, and, about, and a small school concept, about 100 students per grade level. And in, uh, in 2006, um, when I was superintendent in a previous district, Hidalgo ISD, we kind of uh, worked and, and uh, you know, requested authorization from our partners, the UT system, which was a partner at the time, Educate Texas or Texas High School Project, Gates Foundation, to do it completely different. Uh, not too big of a high school, about 800 students, but to, why not, if, we, if lottery works, this is a high school with 99% Hispanic, the students 93% economically disadvantaged, I knew that all the students, or I knew that 80 or 90% would apply. So if they could be selected by lottery, why not just transform the whole high school into an early college high school and use it as a systemic transformation model? And uh, so th that, that began there. Uh, moving on a few years later to, to, to PSJA, um, much larger district, 10 times larger, over 8,000 high school students. We've been working since 2007 on a concept of how can you scale and, 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 and try to provide, how can we systemically change a system and partner with a college partner, which is in our case is South Texas College, to basically integrate our two systems and, uh, and create a, a system where, where it's possible for practically all students to start the college work and high percentages of them turn associate degrees, certificates, get a good, good start on college. So around the state in, in trying to do this, and this concept have gone beyond the small, has spread around the state. There's some school-wide large early college high schools here in Austin. Uh, there's, there's four or five in Brownsville. There's, and so as this has spread around, then different models have developed. So no longer is it only on the college campus. So now many of them are located at the high school campus with the college coming to the high school in one form or fashion or busing the students for part of the day uh, to, to the college. So there's school within a school model. There's school-wide models. There's partnerships um, between districts. There's uh, STEM-focused. There's career and technology-focused. And so in Texas is where you really see the most ex experimentation and variation 
with, uh, with early college, high school, and it's growing uh, very rapidly, particularly in South Texas where I think uh, there's 40-some early college high schools, a third of the early college high schools uh, in the state are, are in that area. The El Paso area has a number, and then other, other places around the state. So where we are today is, like I said, moving from maybe a, uh, uh, almost like a magnet-type concept to a systemic transformation concept is, is the state of early college high school in Texas. That's very helpful. That's a great start. So, so President Reed, why don't you tell us then a little bit, what I'd like to do is then talk to the, universe, to, the, to the presidents here about what it looks like, what your variants look like. So why don't we just go down the road and start with you, President Reed. Okay. At uh, South Texas College, we serve as the higher ed partner for now 28 early college high schools with about six different school districts. And the reason we so quickly embraced the early college high schools is um, we felt in our region we simply had to create a college-going culture. It simply didn't exist. But by developing dual enrollment and that leading into the early college high schools, we're able to provide the opportunity for almost all students to earn an associate degree while in high school, and we do it tuition-free. This was our strategy to create that college-going culture for families that never imagined their children would go to college. So that, that was the genesis of how we, we developed with this model. Uh, the results are astounding. We are finding that uh, when we look at all these early college high schools together, about 48% of those high school graduates actually have earned an associate degree. Uh, the balance may have 30 hours of college. They're well on their way to earning a certificate. We have some early college high schools where 97% of those graduates already have two years of college. Um, we're now embarking on career and technology specific early college high schools. Uh, because of the demand for technology in the areas of diesel technology, welding, precision manufacturing. So those high school students will be very focused on those three career programs, leave us, and probably go into jobs beginning at sixty dollars and $70,000 a year. So that's why we're in this market. Terrific. Well, I'm David Watts, as uh, Jim uh, introduced, I'm at the University of Texas, the Permian Basin. And you may not know that that's located in Odessa, Texas. Uh, we're in the heart of the oil producing region of Texas, the major oil producing region of Texas. And um, uh, it's an enormous area. It's 20% uh, larger than the state of, state of Georgia, 20% larger than the state of Georgia, but only has about 400, 450,000 people. And that's a relatively recent rapid increase in population. Used to be only about 300,000 people. So enormous distance uh, and, uh, and not many people. But uh, uh, there are people who uh, uh, deserve the same kind of attention that uh, the rest of Texans uh, are experiencing. Now, the original plan for early college high school required the higher education partner and the uh, K-12 partner to be proximate to one another. In other words, they had to be close enough that they could be bused back and forth, that 
you know, the, the uh, uh, located on the college campus uh, as uh, uh, the concept, one concept. Uh, and that's just not feasible uh, for the most part in West Texas. I mean, you can get on a bus at 6 o'clock in the morning uh, and arrive at the university about 12 o'clock, and it's about time to turn around and go back. And uh, maybe you could use the bus trip. I, I hadn't thought about that until mentioning it to you. Uh, we could just make buses our, 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 our college classroom. But, the new frontier in distance education. Yeah, I, I don't want to go there. Uh, it, was, it was a bad thought. Um, and it's possible in the uh, Midland, Odessa urban areas, Midland College and Midland ISD have a partnership and very much in, a, uh, in the model that uh, was described. Uh, Presidio, Texas, uh, if you've ever been to Big Bend or have ever studied a map to go to Big Bend, you may have seen or driven through Presidio, Texas. It's right on the border, uh, but it's not in the lower Rio Grande Valley. It's 245 miles, más o menos, uh, from Odessa. And they were uh, led by a very uh, uh, energetic board president, Carlos Nieto, and an equally energetic superintendent, Dennis McIntyre. That district decided that they were going to be an early college high school. Well, the nearest higher education partner is about 85 miles away nearest higher education partner, possible higher education partner. El Paso's fairly close, sort of. <laughs> and, uh, and then there's Odessa. And for one reason and another, uh, Dr. McIntyre, Mr. McIntyre and Mr. Nieto decided that they wanted to work with UTPB, where we are, and we're delighted. It's one of the best partnerships um, I've experienced uh, in the course of uh, my career. And we do it all uh, by distance ed. Uh, it is 80% uh, online. By 80%, uh, occasionally our music uh, faculty member drives down to Presidio and our English faculty member drives down to Presidio and Presidio drives up to Odessa and they camp out in the student union and, uh, uh, and they do a variety of things. Uh, and the most amazing thing is that it's working. Now, we haven't graduated our, our first class yet, uh, but we're right following the curriculum that we've developed. Uh, some really uh, enterprising students are already taking Calculus One while they're juniors. Uh, it's working. In fact, the pass rate for our early college high school at Presidio is higher than the pass rate of our native students. It's working. And we're expanding it. Uh, this year, we expanded it to three other school districts. If you don't know where Presidio is, my guess is you know where Marfa is, right? <laughs> uh, Marfa's joined, and of course, it's kind of on the way to Presidio in a West Texas sense. And then, uh, <laughs> then, uh, then uh, Rankin uh, joined us. I, I bet you don't know where Rankin is, but if you're with the University of Texas, you should because it was near where the first well was developed. Then uh, uh, Balmeray joined us. And if you've ever taken a trip on I-10 going toward El Paso or coming from El Paso, you've driven past Balmeray. Beautiful springs, wonderful state park, great farming community, total uh, high school uh, ninth grade population of maybe 20 students. 
maybe 20 students. And same with Rankin, same with Marfa. So what we're doing is reaching to those school districts that were systematically, systematically left out of the whole early college high school movement. They weren't eligible. And since about 20% of Texas's population is rural, and not near any higher education institution, although we'll all work to fix that if we possibly can, uh, the point is that an awful lot of the early college high school movement was not available to a substantial portion of Texas. So we're expanding that. We're, we've got a, an image of a hub-and-spoke model. And we're partnering with um, Texas State Technical College uh, to provide the career and technical education component. We're not, that's not in UTPB's charter. So we're partnering with them. And they're providing a substantial proportion of their uh, uh, curricula uh, online and, in some cases, uh, in person. So that's the general outline, and uh, um, thank you. That's great. Thanks. So, um, President Serrato, why don't you tell us about the perspective from El Paso Community College, and then we'll do is we'll have Wynn and Victor kind of pop back up and begin to look at, talk a little bit more about the ecosystem and some of the issues out there. Just Sure, my pleasure. So the, the title is Why It Works, uh, and I'll speak to that from the El Paso uh, lens. We have seven early college high schools currently. We, we virtually have each of the respective models. We have a school within a school model. We have four of the early college high schools on our campuses, on one of each of our respective campuses. Uh, we have a rural early college high school that has three different school districts that are participating in that. And I'd be remiss if I didn't recognize John Fitzpatrick from Educate Texas, who's in the audience, and all the work that really uh, Educate Texas has really guided most of the community colleges and most of the, most of the initiatives with regards to early college high schools. Um, lots of funders that have come for seed money to provide that. Uh, and Dr. Rhodes, who started these in El Paso, is also in our audience today. So thank you both for being here. What we look at is... Uh, it really all begins with higher expectations. If we set the bar high, our students will not only rise to that bar, they'll exceed that bar. And let me give an example of what we see with that in El Paso. So our first early college high school was Mission Early College High School on our Mission Del Paso campus. Those students, so we hear 90%, things of that nature, 90, over 90% of those students receive their associate's degrees while they're juniors in high school. And they start as seniors in high school at the University of Texas at El Paso. So that's where we've raised the bar, and the students not only rise to that occasion, they, they exceed that. And again, we couldn't have done this without Dr. Rosser, who's sitting on the stage with us, to, prov to provide those scholarships. The community college has the ability to waive tuition for these students. The university does not have that ability. And so, at least not at UTEP, they don't have that ability. And so what we see is these students rise to the occasion. They do exceptionally well. Um, the issue is increasing the expectations for these students and then providing the support that they need to meet those expectations outside of the classroom. In the classroom is their job. Set that expectation. We have T-STEM. We have all types of early college high schools within the El Paso area, and we're writing an a, a application for our er, eighth early college high school with Socorro Independent School District at Socorro High School. Um, the issue is early college high schools work just like dual credit works. And the data is indisputable statewide. And so the last coordinating board data that was available for FTIC students, statewide data, showed that students that took as little as 1 to 11 credit hours, their persistence rate the first year in college, regardless of the institution they went, was 
Five years later, over 55% of them had an associate's degree or higher. So dual credit in early college high schools work, and it is not the silver bullet, but it's certainly part of the silver buckshot to increase that educational attainment level for our state and reach the goals that have been set forth. I'm just writing down silver buckshot. Isn't that a great <laughs> And I'm seeing a lot of other people doing it, too. So nicely done. So, okay, but, but that's actually a good transition. So in terms of silver buckshot, put, you know, we've heard some, some pretty specific kinds of regional things here when put in perspective for us in terms of the things that you know from your work at the foundation and how this fits into the kind of goals that we're trying to achieve here. Sure. So Silver Buckshot's a great way of thinking about it. If I say seventh grade cohort data, how many people in the room by a show of hands know what I'm talking about? Some, but, but not most. So our state has this wonderful ability to track seventh graders from the seventh grade into eighth grade, into high school, at high school graduation, who enrolls in post-secondary education, and then what happens. So you can find this data, it's done every three years, you can find this data on the Higher Ed Coordinating Board website, or you can go to the Texas Tribune website, search for Higher Ed Outcomes. It's the same data set, only they start at the eighth grade, so we can compare to three other states in our country, three other states, I think it is, that have the ability to do that same tracking. So, if we were a typical seventh grade class indexed to 100 students, so think about you, know, you being in seventh grade or maybe a child, grandchild in seventh grade. If we were that seventh grade class, 100 people, would the first five rows in this middle section stand up? So count back one, two, three, four, five. The fifth row back, please stand up. To the fifth row. Everybody stand up, please. Audience participation, at least 20% of you. This is 20%. Roughly, I did quick math, 20% of the, uh, you may sit down. Congratulations. <laughs> You're the ones who made it. Congratulations, you are the Texas 7th graders who 12 years later finished any form of post-secondary credential. One in five. And when you disaggregate by race and ethnicity, it's, it's one in 10 African Americans and, and one in 10 Latino, Latinos. Um, and so when you start thinking about, well, why? What's happening there? What's really important about this data set is that it takes everyone's efforts into account. Uh, it takes the K-12 system into account, high school, community colleges and universities, and it's saying we all are responsible for this Texas 7th grader. What does it take to get a 7th grader through to a college credential of any type, an associate's degree, a workforce certificate, or a bachelor's degree? And again, that 20% is all three of those kinds of credentials. So the thing that, that we like about early college high schools, when we started looking at this about seven or eight years ago, you start trying to think about, okay, so what are all the possible things that can keep a Texas student from going on to achieve some type of a post-secondary outcome? The early college high school addresses a lot of those. Not all, but a lot. So it's a very structured K-12 environment where the students need those kind of supports, but if you set the right conditions, if the adults figure the conditions out right and the systems out right, the students will rise to the occasion. So we've ample evidence of that. I'm really glad this panel isn't entitled Does It Work? Because it does. The evidence is clear. Um, so that rigorous uh, environment within the context of a K-12 structure environment, that works. Uh, college knowledge goes up. College advising is better. Students are on a pathway. Uh, the first 30, 40, 60 hours are done at no cost to the students. So there's, as we talk about the cost of higher education rising, uh, students that are in the early college high school environment you know, get a, a substantial part of their college paid for um, through, through public funding and through philanthropic startup funding. Um, 
time to degree is reduced uh, because students, again, are, are receiving uh, up to an associate's degree through their high school experience. And so uh, you have one-year graduation rates at UTEP now. You have students finishing their undergraduate degree at UTEP, University of Texas El Paso, uh, within the first year of enrolling as a full-time university student there because they, they took so much uh, college credit as, an under, as a high school student at El Paso Community College and as enrolling at UTEP as a high school senior. So again, um, evidence after evidence at UT Pan American, we know that students who have come out of the early college high schools uh, persist at higher rates, have higher grade point averages than the native students, uh, graduate, shorter time frame. So um, think about all the things that can go wrong from the seventh grade through a high school, through a college experience. The early college addresses <laughs> a lot of those. So we like it uh, for that reason. And if you think about the three things that predict higher education um, completion, it's the uh, family income, parental education, and the rigor of the high school experience. And the thing about the early college high school experience is that it is rigorous. Um, and that is, that is the thing at, at its most. That's the one thing out of those three we can do something about for all students is increase the rigor of their high school experience. And that's the, the primary reason, in my view, that this is, a, among all those other reasons, that this is a win. <laughs> so, Victor, th thanks a lot, Wynn. That's great. Um, so, Victor, you know, Wynn mentions, you know, the adults managing conditions and systems. You're, I know that you, your research is looking, you've got a project going where you're looking at capacity, <laughs> you're familiar with a lot of assessment. Give us a sense from your perspective of where the successes and the challenges are up to this point based on your research. You know. Thanks, Jim. So I'll start with the ecosystem idea you referenced earlier, and to think about the policy context uh, around dual enrollment in this state. So about 2006 <coughs> is when the legislature passed House Bill 1 to basically require school districts across the state to provide at least 12 hours of dual credit opportunities for students in Texas. So the intention here was to continue to make college going more accessible and affordable. And I think on those two points, we have seen sweeping changes in dual enrollment landscape here in Texas led by regions like the Rio Grande Valley, and as Dr. King alluded to, about a third of all early college high schools, which is one type of dual enrollment model. About a third of those actually reside in the Rio Grande Valley, and that, by the way, that proportion is inching upward more and more. In fact, we're seeing a broader trend of inching upward, if you will, with respect to early college high schools being adopted in all their different variations across the state. And I think there's good reason for that. Among the research on dual enrollment, and again, I'm speaking broadly here about dual enrollment programs, not specifically early college high school models, but we know that there are various financial benefits given the affordability quotient there to students. We know that earning college credits while in high school increases the likelihood that a student will graduate high school and then persist towards a degree in college. Uh, we know the rigorous and meaningful coursework in high school, as these dual credit and dual enrollment programs try to do, prepares the students to succeed in college. We know there's a higher first-year grade point average in college for dual enrollment students. We know that higher second-year retention rates. We know there are higher four- and six-year degree completion rates. So these are all the key metrics that I think our policymakers and our educational leaders look to uh, as key evidence, if you will, of the efficacy of these different efforts. And clearly, when it comes to each of these different outcomes, early college high school students, those few graduating classes now that have emerged uh, over the last decade, uh, have proven to meet that measure and then some. So when we think about why it works, so you know, these are the metrics that show sort of the outcomes of why, you know, what might be happening. But in terms of why it works, I, I want to refer to uh, the Education Commission for the States and their recent publication on dual enrollment programs. Four key tenets, I think, components of dual enrollment programs 
that makes sense. And I think we can start understanding why an early college high school model and the, the different variances that are included uh, within that, that framework uh, work so well. One is that access has to be a key piece of it, that student eligibility needs to be widespread. And in Texas, of course, if a student is TSI eligible or in their 11th or 12th grade, they're eligible ultimately to participate in dual enrollment uh, coursework. Uh, financing, another key component of any kind of good dual enrollment program. Responsibility for tuition payments does not fall to the parents. Now you think about regions like the Rio Grande Valley, where I was born and raised, proud graduate of a public school, La Jolla ISD uh, student uh, in the early 90s. You know, affordability is such a key piece to any notion of going to college for, for many of these families, most of whom are going to be first in their family to go to college. The fact that we're giving these opportunities to these young kids earlier and earlier in their educational trajectory portends very positively for future outcomes. Uh, but districts and post-secondary institutions are fully funded or reimbursed for participating students. That's another key component that the Edu Education Commission of the States, ECS, is suggesting as part and parcel of strong dual enrollment programs. Again, that's a very sort of healthy um, funding model that's in place here in the state of Texas, at least for the time being, and would suggest that going forward uh, would, would need to continue to be in place. We have one particular study, an ROI study done by, uh, funded by JFF, Jobs for the Future, uh, about a decade ago that looked at return on investment for these kinds of students participating in, in early college high school. And again, while it's harder to, to get at the longer term returns on investment, the key evidence is there to suggest that these students will indeed, quote, pay for themselves. In other words, the investment will return back to these school districts and community colleges and four-year colleges and then some. Uh, in terms of uh, increased uh, participation uh, for these students in, into the labor force, into the workforce, et cetera. The third key component that ECS suggests is key to, to strong dual enrollment is rigor. Right? And so we've heard a lot of the, the, the folks on the panel talk about the courses meet the same level of rigor uh, as taught to traditional students at partner institutions for higher education. So you have several college presidents on this panel have lauded now the important work that they're doing with their school district partners in maintaining that level of rigor and quality. So in other words, we cannot have that dip just because we are offering courses uh, to you know, 15, 16-year-old, 17-year-old students. They, the same bar, if you will, of expectation has to be there as if they were 18, 19, 20-year-old freshmen and sophomores in, in college. And I think you see that very well evident in some of the early college high schools around the state. And the final key component here for ECS is transferability. And this is where the, the, the partnership between K-12 and higher education is why I say rubber meeting the road, right? So are these students able to traverse efficiently through these dual enrollment uh, course offerings so that it actually translates into transferred credits towards the degree? And on those points, this is where we're starting to see, uh, to Jim's question, some of the challenges begin to emerge around how we can continue as a state to support these programs, like an early college high school, especially in areas of the state where they're so needed and they have proven to be so effective already, like the Rio Grande Valley. The demand is so great, right? And so it's really beginning to put some pressure on the capacity of the region to be able to absorb and meet those key standards set forth by ECS and by the evidence on dual enrollment programs writ large. And clearly, I think the early college high school model, given the variety of different technical assistance and support um, and, and the learning community that has emerged as a result of this important innovative work in Texas, we're starting to see the fruits of that labor come, come through for, for many of these students and these communities across the state. You've all talked about, thanks, that, that's exactly what we needed, I think, Victor. So, so Victor sets this, you know, talking about <laughs> demand. And there's so much, and, and all of you touched on this in some degree or another, 
but there's so much more demand than supply here. So, you know, I'd like to go and just have each of you kind of briefly talk to me about your view of how you scale this to meet that demand, because I think it's a, it's a real sure. open question. What we're doing in, in Farsaw and Alamo is we're, like I said, it's a significant, somewhat large district, 32,000 students. We're pushing almost 9,000 high school students now. And we're working very hard to try to scale this to make it accessible to every single student, which is a challenge. It's a, it's a long-range goal. But we, we now have um, in our district six early college high schools of different models. This, this, semester, this semester, we have over 3,000 high school students taking college courses. Um, our graduating class last, this past year of 1,900, uh, for the first time we crossed the halfway mark, over 1,000 of them in the neighborhood of 1,100, a little over 1,100 graduated with college hours already. Uh, you heard Wynn Rosser talk about um, the, uh, the cohort studies. And uh, for Hispanics, about 10% have a, any kind of college completion by age 25 or 26, you know, 12, 11, 12 years after eighth grade. Uh, our graduating class last year uh, had close to 20% had completed college by age 18 or 19 by the time they, so you're talking about almost doubling the success for Hispanic students. Um, uh, and you're talking about doing that um, eight years earlier than the average. And we're trying to push it up to where uh, we're about, in the next few years, where about half of our students do that. As, as was mentioned, the, the, as you scale, there's, there, there are a lot of issues. And there's issues of capacity. That's something that Dr. Reed and I work together all the time trying to you know, figure out you know, uh, you know, how between the two of us to provide enough qualified in instructors to do it. And of course, she's dealing on not only with PSJ, but, you know, many, many, so of her 28, six of them are with us, and she's got 22 others. Besides that, then there's what Victor brought up also, which is then, uh, you know, and, and if we've got school districts like ours with thousands of students taking college classes, and often they're taking a lot of those away from the college and so forth, then, you know, then how do you look at efficiency to degree and things like that? So what we're starting to do more and more, so for example, uh, this, this year we had, um, uh, we now have um, college advisors that are our staff that are trained by the college that are at every high school to, to assist in the advising. We've got, uh, we had about 20 actually of our staff in the district fully trained two weeks training as college advisors to make sure that we're on top of degree planning and all of that so that we can, so that we can get even, even better at that. I think one of the things that this has really forced, which is really good, one of the issues in really across the country over the years as we look at this issue, you know, is that in the past, you know, the model of the past was that when everybody looked at outcomes, the colleges said, well, you guys didn't get them ready. And the high school said, well, they passed the state test, they did this, we gave them to you guys, and you know, what happened? Or we graduated, they did an application to your school, and they never got in the door. And what, what this is forcing is we actually work together, we problem solve. So, for example, ST, South Texas College and PSJ, our data teams are best friends. Or sometimes... <laughs> it's a little strange, but we're a, good friends. Get in a spat. <laughs> but, but they work together all throughout the year, running, running data against each other, um, you know, sharing data, trying to figure out how, how do we... You know, who owns these students? We jointly own them, and how do we work together and, and get past all the, uh, all the territorial you know, issues? So what it's forcing us to do is sit down and say, 
Dr. Reed made a, a, a joke earlier when we were outside that she's made several times, and it's kind of true. She says, uh, you know, she says sometimes, it, you know, uh, people over there ask, well, who's, uh, you know, who's running the college? Is it you or Dr. King? And I said, well, in, in PSJ, they sometimes say, who's running the district? Is it Dr. Reed or you? You know, because we work so much together in solving the problems, and we're responding to each other's, um, you know, needs and, 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 and challenges. And so all of those things are, are, you know, are very critical. But I think if you see, if the focus, to me, the focus should be getting students to and through college. And I, I like to use that as a civil engineering term. You gotta bring the infrastructure to your property and on so the next guy can hook onto it. And that's, that's kind of our job instead of the, the model where there were breaks in the system. So I got them to 12 and, and then they kind of spew out and hopefully you collect them. So it's getting them to and through the, to the next level. Mr. President Sorotti, yeah. the community colleges are really in tough positions in a lot of ways and have particular challenges. So I'm, I'm curious, how do you sort through these kinds of issues in terms of balancing you know, in a lot of ways, but are just brute force economic resource issues sometimes with the kind of organizational issues. How do you sort of sort through that? Sure. So a couple of things. Dr. King mentioned a couple of things that I think are key. So he said a 1,000 of his 2,000 graduates. So simple math, that's 50% of his class. So we're not talking about the top 10%, which is usually what people think. Oh, well, these are students that would have been successful anyway. So he's reaching well into the, the second, third, and even fourth quartile for students to get into these college-level courses. And again, if we raise the bar, they'll meet that bar. Um, the piece that, that we're doing additionally in El Paso is the university's at the table. And so we're sitting with Dr. Natalicio and her team, the college, and the school districts. Um, we have three school districts in El Paso that account for 85% of the students in El Paso, 12 total. But these are school districts that are 45,000 and up, uh, one of them 62,000 students. And so by pulling all of those players together, what we're looking at with regards to capacity and then the economic piece that you spoke to is, how do we first increase the capacity of dual credit? That becomes really the key piece. As Victor uh, alluded to earlier, Dr. Sine spoke to HB1 that passed 10, 12 years ago that said that students should have access to those 12 hours. We're trying to up that to 15, a minimum of 15 hours. The McClennies here at UT Austin when they were here, 15 hours was a magic mark for students to hit. If they hit 15 hours, their likelihood to graduate from college rises significantly. So let's work on increasing first dual credit capacity and then expand to early college high schools. But with dual credit, we sit with the, the school districts. We have business and industry at the table in El Paso saying, let's find a way to provide low or no interest loans for teachers to receive their master's degrees. We'll provide the space. If it's in East El Paso, they can use the Mission El Paso campus to come and gather and take those courses in the specific areas. Um, transferability is always an issue. And usually, unfortunately, uh, I'm sitting at one of the universities that, that sometimes it's an issue at, the two flagships, uh, one that I went to and one that's here, that we have to work on ensuring that those courses transfer. If they're core courses, there's never an issue with regards to transferability. So if we looked at the 15 hours, and so we're working with the districts, one superintendent saying, I have seven comprehensive high schools. I'm going to focus on getting eight teachers to get a master's degree in the core areas, English, government, history, mathematics, and then turn around and say, I'm going to pay for their master's degree, but I'm going to hold them. You now have a master's degree that I helped paid for, so now you have to sign and be, that you'll be here three to five years after you finish your master's. So those are the kinds of things that we're doing to increase the capacity in El Paso. I'd like to shift the focus just a bit. Um, all, I think all of my colleagues up here are in, in uh, urban areas. Uh, 
an awful lot of Texas is, is rural. And the demand and the need, maybe not the demand, the need, is probably greatest in rural Texas. Let, TEA divides the state in a number of districts, and so our district, you won't be surprised to know, is called West Texas. And the Rio Grande Valley is in a district. Uh, far West Texas is a district. And when you compare all these districts in terms of the uh, educational success of those students, the high school graduation rates, the college-going rates, the worst district in Texas is West, is the West District. It's the rural district. It's the area where perhaps there aren't master's qualified teachers in those districts. Uh, and getting a master's degree uh, can be problematic. Uh, uh, you know, Crane, uh, uh, Texas, in the middle of uh, uh, an, another oil patch, 45 miles away from Odessa, Pecos, 85 miles away from Odessa. Well, imagine you're teaching during the day and you're teaching, you're, you're starting a morning, you know when you start, six, seven o'clock, and you end your day maybe at five o'clock if you're lucky. You know that I'm, I'm making, you know, I'm, most teachers go well beyond that. And then drive to Odessa and then take three hours of class so you don't have to drive more than once a week. And you go back to work the next day and you're dead. And your students are too. So it's not just demand, it's real need. And in West Texas, the, the, the distance education model provides that opportunity, and it's scalable. It's scalable not just in West Texas, it's scalable for all of Texas. And, and most of you know it's scalable beyond our borders. And it provides a real opportunity for students, uh, a real opportunity to to, if you will, uh, bring uh, our performance as a state up. And so while it's wonderful to have embedded teachers uh, in classrooms with appropriate master's degrees and, 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 and things of that sort, uh, this model provides an opportunity. Uh, it's a, uh, in our case, a university instructor teaching the same curriculum that he or she teaches in his classroom setting to real physical university <laughs> students. And it, it, that offers, in my judgment, enormous opportunity for Texas, enormous opportunity for well, beyond Texas, uh, just enormous opportunity. And uh, that's not to say that um, uh, human relationships aren't important. They absolutely are. Some of you are old enough to remember uh, St. Marshall McLuhan. Um, you seem apparently remember Jim. Um, and, you know, McLuhan said, uh, high tech, high touch. That's where it came from. And uh, if, you, uh, if you're going to rely on high tech, as we are, it requires enormous touch uh, uh, to be able to, to successfully retain and actually educate these students successfully. It can be done, though. I think I missed the canonization, but I... <laughs> 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 so how do, you, how do you juggle that mix of... Resources well, um, challenges. in Deep South Texas, we have the privilege of both tremendous need and just a tremendous volume. We, we have to address both. And um, part of our model is if you're committed 
to doing what is right for your community in the best interest of those students, you will find a way to allocate limited resources. Um, we have done study after study on the cost of dual enrollment, and we find that because of our partnerships, we break even. We can cover the bills. We forego the revenue of tuition, but because Dr. King is providing faculty, he's providing textbooks, he probably has 10 school buses on our campuses on any given day, we're sharing in the resources that we can handle this volume. We currently have 13,000 dual enrollment students. Mm. I think we're getting a one, two, three minute warning. Um, so we have found ways to handle it. And the way we handle scale is we use Dr. King as our front runner. And we say, Danny, let's make this work. You find a way to make this work with your school district. And once he makes it work, I can get 20 other school districts to want to learn how to do it, model what he has done, and we're able to sweep it across the valley. That's our strategy for scalability. You want to add someone? I just think that the, the question of scale is really important. I would ask, what are we trying to scale? Um, you know, so the, the title of the panel is Early College, Why Does It Work? Well, work to what end? Um, and, and is it 15 college hours? Is it an associate's degree? Is it the rigorous high school experience? I think we kind of have to think uh, holistically what is it that, that we're trying to scale. And scale has different, um, you know, the, the model that Dr. Watts is talking about is a different version of scale than the district-wide work that Educate Texas is helping PSJA and, and Brownsville ISD do. So um, the, the notion of scale is something we all like to talk about. It's, it's elusive. It's hard to get to. Uh, we always want to serve more and more people, but I think, uh, you know, scale to what end, and, and it works to what end, and part of that then is this ecosystem that, that Victor brought up, and Dr. Reed and Dr. King are talking about this relationship they have. Um, that's unique in the way that system leaders work together across boundaries, um, but 70% of our students in Texas stay local for higher education. 70% stay local for higher ed. You take A&M and UT out and enroll about 100,000 each, or 100,000 total, about 1.4 million students are enrolled somewhere else. And because of that, it makes this ecosystem really important. And so what you really have to scale is you have to scale leadership like these four individuals are talking about, uh, like Richard Rhodes really charted the course for in El Paso, working with Dr. Natalicio. And so that's really what you have to scale to get the kind of outcomes we're talking about. And if the leaders figure it out, the adults figure it out, then, then the students will perform. I want to open it up for questions in a second, but I can't help but fall back a little bit in where I live a little bit more. And I'm going to be sorry I asked this, I suspect. But aside from appropriations, can the, what can the legislature do to help? We're, they're all going to be back here in January. You know, you've talked about shifting hour requirements, definitions. I know that you know, various people, I was at the higher ed, uh, committee meeting a few weeks ago and had people asking about revisiting a lot of the formula funding, a lot of the, the definitions of transferability, lots of things that seem to apply either in some cases, and you know, some, I don't see our government relations people here, you know, either just to you or oriented toward just the UT and A&M, or that are oriented even worse to a model of students that 
really are becoming more and more mythical in terms of the person who graduates from high school, starts college, graduates college, and goes on. I mean, that's just more and more a rare experience for students. Just quickly before we open it up, just a couple of words. People have a sense of what the legislature could do to help. Don't screw up a good thing that we already have in place. Please don't screw it up. I think... Uh, I love that, by the way. I, I mean, several areas. I think the, you know, the model's working well. I think several areas, one which has been mentioned already, which is transferability. Mm-hmm. And uh, they all start with a T, I think, but transferability is one. Um, transportation w- would be another one because um, there's not really funding to be transporting students to the college, and so when that's, uh, it, when it's possible, sometimes with distance it's not possible, then it's good for the students to get at least some of the experience on the college campus. Technology is another one, because mm-hmm. if, we, if you're going to do it by distance and things like that, textbooks uh, is, is another one, because mm-hmm. it kind of falls in between college textbooks are a little more. One of the neat things, again, going back to the partnership, is that we have an agreement with South Texas College that, that the, uh, and I think it'll possibly have something similar that dual enrollment courses that are taught in a cohort basis, if, if it's only high school students in there, that the same textbook will, will stay in use for four years instead of, instead of different professors requiring different books. That way the district, the district, we purchase the books and then we issue them like we do our high school textbooks and collect them back up and reissue them. And so that brings some, some efficiency. So those are, those are some examples of a, you know, of a few, uh, and then I know I don't know, there's different situations. I don't know if it's smaller ones. I know for some tuition, they talk about tuition. So uh, I think uh, Alma Garcia from Educate Texas has framed it as the five T's, for example, that, uh, that, that can be challenging in that way. Uh, briefly, I'd speak to, uh, at the state level, um, depending on the area. So the larger community colleges have the ability to waive tuition. Some of the smaller community colleges do not have that ability. And what I'd say is don't, put the mat, you know the one size fits all. So I would hate that the state legislature say that everyone has to charge tuition could we see draconian drops in enrollment and dual credit which is only going to hurt the state in the long run with regards to the educational population that we're trying to reach. At the federal level, um, had the opportunity to speak to some of the administration folks in DC and at the federal level what they're trying to look at now is piloting Pell for high school students. And this would be a key. This would be a real game changer because the populations that South Texas serves and that West Texas serves, 90% of my first time in college students are on some type of financial aid. 95% of that is Pell. And so they're going to qualify if we allowed them to utilize Pell while they're still in high school, while they're moving forward and increasing their success rates. That would help the institutions as well. Well, uh, Jim, you uh, really kind of uh, messed up the question. Uh, I do that a lot. The the, the one responsibility of the legislature is to draft an appropriations bill. So don't take that off the table. Uh, If this is important, and obviously these folks uh, and many other people believe that it is, uh, then the legislature ought to incentivize it. And it could do a better job than what it's been doing. Uh, Enough said. I've clearly gone too native. I look out for the appropriations guys. <laughs> Two things quickly. One is a state financial aid program for graduates of early college high schools, similar to yeah. Texas Grant. Um, there's already too little state financial aid, need-based aid available, but uh, these are students who have demonstrated they're most likely to finish a college credential. They're the ones upon whom we should be placing our bets. 
Uh, second would be guaranteed transfer pathways. Our state articulation and transfer process is a mess. Uh, relate, results in $100 million a year cost to students and institutions for courses that are retaken because they don't apply to degree programs. Uh, we, we need to figure that out. Uh, and it would advantage not only early college high school students, but all students that transfer between community colleges and universities and universities to universities. Victor, you had a sly smile when I asked that question. <laughs> well, I, I'll say this. I had a chat with Dr. Trison recently, who's done some work in this space as well, a professor here at UT, many of you know in the audience. Um, and I know his uh, group of scholars recently did, uh, researchers here, grad students, did a study on sort of national study on, on dual enrollment. And something like half the states have started fudging with funding formulas on dual enrollment in the last decade. And uh, clearly, we're a state that's on the cutting edge with respect to creative financing and whatnot. I'll leave it at that. But um, I think, <laughs> I, think uh, I would say that uh, we need to preserve the current model of funding, the dual model of funding, both student contact hours and ADA, uh, given that so many of our, especially higher ed partners, are already subsidizing these programs at the expense of other, perhaps other areas, because they see the longer-term benefit for their respective communities. And I'll tip my hat to the community colleges represented on this panel, but across the state that are doing that for, for the kids who are across this uh, great state. I think on that note, I would thank our panelists, please. That was really very substantive. It's terrific. And we want to open it for questions. Please keep your questions as brief as possible so that we can fit more than one or two. Ma'am, thank you. Hi there. I don't have a question. I have a comment. My name is Lisa Montalongo. I'm from El Paso, and I'm a former school board member. First, Dr. King, when I was on the school board with Isleta in 2008, we watched you and your board receive the National uh, School Board of the Year Award, and they showed that video of what you were doing in your school. We came back, and we, t we asked our superintendent, we want that. Dr. Rhodes, I want to thank you, because, be because of you, we were able to get our first one. Dr. Serrata, because of you, we're looking at getting two more. And the session before here, I left here thinking, oh, God, we have lots of work to do. You all get it. You all understand that our students get opportunity when given rigor. So I just want to say thank you. Very nice. Thank you. Good afternoon. Uh, my name is Usama Rogers, and I'm a former early college high school principal. I was the principal of Cedar Hill Collegiate High School in Cedar Hill, Texas. And I'd like you all to speak a little bit about how, um, because we know the research about early college says that it works um, for lots of kids who wouldn't be successful, but removing some of those barriers, like you talked about textbooks. But one challenge when you restrict the classes to cohorts of high school students, students don't benefit from the rich experience of being immersed into the college setting. So how will um, legislatively um, this group begin to lobby about things to help remove some of those barriers from ISDs um, to make it advantageous for the higher ed partners in terms of textbooks and then the other thing is about the um, bridge from the community college to the four-year college or university because I think outside of the valley that articulation between the four-year college and university is not as robust. Well, I'll start with uh, part of the response, and I know my colleagues will chime in. Um, the dual enrollment classes don't have to be restricted just to the high school students. Uh, we have our early college high schools and our dual enrollment students uh, integrated in all our uh, five campuses. Um, 
And we recognize the value of the early college high school students having the college experience with other college students mm -hmm. on the college campus, mm -hmm. and that certainly uh, can be achieved. I'm not sure I've really heard all the questions, but I, I just want to comment briefly, uh, taking off Dr. Reed's comments. Uh, when we do online courses, we mix and match students. They're, they're, uh, UTPB student athletes who are traveling who need to take an online course mixed in with uh, Presidio students, mixed in with Balmeray students, mixed in with uh, somebody from Chicago, Illinois. Um, and, but the focus for the early college high school students to help them to be sure that they're successful in the course is with back on the high school campus, uh, having somebody work with those students uh, very, very closely and monitor on a weekly basis how they're doing and uh, provide the necessary support services, academic support services for those, for those students, which we do. We do that for all the students in our classes online, but with a particular focus on the early college high school student. If the panel's okay, I'm gonna to try to fit in one quick, a last one from Paul Colbert. <laughs> okay, and I'll, I'll try to make this uh, as quick as I can, and it, sort of, it, it dovetails on what y'all were saying, and that's that, there has been a continuing fight within the legislative process to, uh, to make the funding accessible for, for these programs. As, as many of you on the panel know, but maybe a lot of folks in the audience don't know, there used to actually be a, a penalty to the school districts of loss of ADA funding uh, if, if their kids participated in any great numbers in the uh, dual credit and early college programs. And that keeps rearing its ugly head. You have members of the legislature and members of the budget board staff who keep calling the, the funding double dipping. And so I guess my question to you is, what message can you give to the people out here about what they need to do to make it so that the legislature doesn't uh, do what uh, our, our first commenter uh, talked about, and that's uh, to, to kill, kill the goose here? Um, what, what can these folks do to help you in, in, in maintaining and expanding these programs? To me, I think you, uh, to me, I think you focus on, on performance and end results. So there's two things. One, the old model. So the old model, the, the, the state would pay for high school, and the student would finish that, and then the state would pay for college. And the graduation rates, they're clearly unsatisfied with what those are. This current model costs no more than the old model. The students are just doing both at the same time, mm -hmm. and both institutions are still getting paid, but the success rates are much higher. All the studies throughout the state, the studies in different institutions show that these students are graduating at a faster rate, they're having higher GPAs, and uh, you know, retention rate, you know. So it's the same amount of money with greater results. How do you sell that? I don't know, how do you not sell that? That's, that's <laughs> because because, because many, the same amount of money is being spent in in one, in, biennium, in one biennium rather than over two biennia. And so well, from the point of view of the legislator who has to come up with the balanced only, budget, they say that, well, that, that distorts the that, process. That's only true the first time. Yeah. You see, that's right. only true the first time. Because once you start it and it's ongoing, so the very first time uh, you're, you're spending more. But after that, you're not anymore because you're not paying for the other two years on the, on, on the tail end anymore. So, so it, it's only up front, but once you get it rolling, it's like a revolving loan or anything else. Once you're funding it, then it levels off. Now, the increase 
will be because of increased participation, increased college going, increased graduation. So the question that I guess I would ask is, we keep saying, and I'll be honest, I do have that question. We keep saying, our state leadership keeps saying that we want more college graduates. Are we willing to pay for more college graduates? Because that means more college courses, more college classes, more whatever. So you get what you pay for. Well, the next thing that's coming is not only are our students out of early college high schools finishing baccalaureates at increased rates over what a similar peer set would be, they're going to graduate school and professional school and finishing those degrees as well. We're just starting to, we're just getting students that are uh, mature enough in the educational uh, continuum to see that. But so it's a, it's a game changer in terms of who our professional degree holders are and our graduate degree holders as well. Oh so there's data, there's mounting data and evidence. That, that's going to cost the state even more money. Oh, my God. But so. you have to push back on the language of double dipping is in right. some ways. Is actively, and I would say, you know, ha- make sure people have a good understanding and of we do have data they talk to their legislators. Yeah. And, and, and yeah. let, let, me, let me make it clear. I was the person who, who succeeded in getting them to do away with the penalty on it, and, I, and so I'm not, yeah. I'm not advocating no. for it. My, my, my question is, what can these people do to help you in getting that message across to the legislators? Thank you. That is a former legislator asking for help. <laughs> All right. A great panel, please. Thank the panel again. Thank our panelists Thank again. Thank you very much Thank for the, the Thank the audience for coming. Too. Enjoy the rest of the festival. Thank you. Yeah, you did a great job.